Penumbra is a global healthcare company focused on innovative technologies. It is advancing the field of embolization forward with this complete platform that includes Ruby, Pod, and liquid metal packing coil that are designed for versatility and softness. Learn more at penumbrainc.com. Welcome to The Kinked Wire, the interventional radiology podcast from SIR Publications. You can learn more on our website, sirweb.org slash kinkedwire. This episode provides audio abstracts of papers published in the November 2022 issue of SIR's Journal of Vascular and Interventional Radiology. You can find the full papers on jvir.org. My name is Daniel Kim. Hello. My name is Alexander Ziskin, and I'm a third-year medical student at Eastern Virginia Medical School. I will be reading the abstract titled, Inferior Vena Cava Filter Litigation Review, an Analysis of Medical Legal Cases Pertaining to Inferior Vena Cava Filters, by Ahmed and colleagues. Purpose. To identify and analyze all medical malpractice and product liability lawsuits pertaining to inferior vena cava, or IVC, filters, published within a well-recognized legal research database. Materials and Methods LexisNexis, a legal research database, was used to retrieve cases that mention harm from IVC filters or lack thereof as the cause for legal action. A total of 672 cases were analyzed for type of case, medical malpractice product liability, filter model implanted, filter complications, court decisions, and settlement payments, if any. Results. Of 95 analyzed cases, 20, or 21.1%, were medical malpractice cases, and 75, or 78.9%, were product liability cases. C.R. Bard was the manufacturer associated with the most lawsuits, with 41, or 48.8% of lawsuits. The most litigious filters were the G2 filter from C.R. Bard and the Greenfield filter from Boston Scientific, both with 17 or 20.2% of lawsuits. The most common complications were IVC penetration, filter migration, filter fracture, and tilt. The number of product liability cases has increased from accounting for 25% or 2 of 8 filter lawsuits between 2000 and 2010 to 83.9 or 73 of 87 during 2011 to 2020. Of the medical malpractice claims, 9 or 45% were filed for failure to place a filter. One physician was found liable for filter-related complications by a state court in 2014. Conclusions The majority of recent IVC filter-related lawsuits are filed against manufacturers on the basis of product liability claims, with the main litigious filters being the G2 and Greenfield filters. Most cases resulted in rulings for physicians or manufacturers. Some were filed against physicians for filter-related complications or for failure to place an IVC filter. Hello, my name is Monica Neal, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Kansas City University. I will be reading the abstract titled Management of Symptomatic Vascularized Retained Products of Conception by Proximal Uterine Artery Embolization with Gelatin Sponge Torpedoes by Matthew and colleagues. Purpose. To evaluate the effectiveness and safety of temporary proximal uterine artery embolization, or UAE, for the treatment of highly vascularized retained products of conception, or RPOCs. 
materials, and methods. This retrospective analysis included women who underwent treatment for vaginal bleeding after abortion, miscarriage, or delivery with highly vascularized RPOCs detected by Doppler ultrasound, which were determined by the presence of an enhanced myometrial vascularity, a low resistance index that was slower than 0.5 meters per second, and a peak systolic velocity of larger or equal to 0.7 meters per second. A unilateral or bilateral embolization with torpedoes of gelatin form was performed. From November 2017 to January 2021, 24 women with a median age of 30 years with symptomatic highly vascularized RPOCs were included. Clinical success was defined as bleeding arrest between the UAE and one-month follow-up. Technical success was defined as the complete obstruction of at least one uterine artery supplying vascular abnormalities. The safety of the procedure according to the classification of the Society of Interventional Radiology and evolution of lesions and ultrasound were also reported. Results. Technical success was achieved in all 24 patients, with bilateral arterial embolization in 19 or 79% of patients, and unilateral embolization in 5 or 21% of patients. Clinical success was achieved in all 24 patients. Five patients still had uterine retention at the one-month follow-up, including two patients with highly vascularized RPOCs. Two patients benefited from hysteroscopy, and three had non-invasive management. Four minor adverse events were reported. This included one patient with infectious endometritis and three patients with post-embolization syndrome. Conclusions. Proximal UAE with torpedoes of gelatin foam is safe and effective for the management of symptomatic, highly vascularized RPOCs. Hello, my name is Mac Hale, and I'm a third-year medical student at Edward Via College of Osteopathic Medicine, Carolinas. I will be reading the abstract titled, Stent Diameter, Not Cephalic Arch Anatomy, Predicts Stent Graft Patency in Cephalic Arch Stenosis by Kay Lane and colleagues. Purpose. To investigate the relationship between anatomic factors and primary patency of brachiocephalic arteriovenous fistulae, or ABFs, after stent graft placement for cephalic arch stenosis. Materials and methods. This retrospective study reviewed all cephalic arch stent grafts placed in brachiocephalic AVFs in a tertiary academic medical center between 2014 and 2017. 63 patients were included in the study. The mean patient age at the time of stent graft placement was 62.6 years, plus or minus 19, and the mean patient follow-up was 1,994 days, plus or minus 353. A cohort of 31 patients who underwent brachiocephalic fistulograms for cephalic arch stenosis but only received percutaneous transluminal angioplasty, or PTA, was the control group. Patient demographic characteristics, AVF anatomy, stent graft type, and clinical outcomes were reviewed. The duration of primary cephalic arch patency after stent graft placement was compared with that after previous PTA. Results. The median AVF age at the time of data retrieval was 345 days. The primary patency of cephalic arch stenosis after stent graft placement at 6 months, 12 months, and 3 years was 64%, 49.9%, and 23.5% respectively. Primary cephalic arch patency was significantly associated with stent graft diameter, but not with cephalic vein axillary vein junction anatomy, size of feeding artery, or stent graft length. 
The primary patency of cephalic arch stenosis in patients treated with PTA only at six months, 12 months, and three years was 61%, 35%, and 0% respectively, which was significantly lower than that in patients treated with stent graft placement. Conclusions. This study showed that the primary patency of cephalic arch stenosis after stent graft placement was significantly higher than that of PTA-only treatment. Moreover, primary cephalic arch patency after stent graft placement was significantly associated with the stent graft diameter. Hello, my name is Eric Zhuang, and I am a second-year medical student at Creighton University School of Medicine, Phoenix Regional Campus. I will be reading the abstract titled, Computed Tomography Fluoroscopy-Guided Percutaneous Transhepatic Leomycin Athiodized Oleosclerotherapy for Symptomatic Giant Hepatic Hemangioma by Gennady and colleagues. Purpose, to determine the safety and efficacy of CT fluoroscopy-guided percutaneous transhepatic sclerotherapy with a bleomycin athiodized oleoemulsion for symptomatic giant hepatic hemangiomas. Materials and methods. The procedure was performed on 22 patients with symptomatic giant hepatic hemangiomas in an outpatient setting between 2018 and 2020. All patients were followed clinically and underwent contrast-enhanced magnetic resonance imaging after one month and again at a mean time of 15 months. Adverse events were classified according to the common terminology criteria for adverse events, or CTCAE, version 5.0, in which a severe adverse event was defined as an adverse event with a grade of greater or equal to 3. The desired radiologic response in volume and index size an improvement of pain intensity measured by the visual analog scale, or VAS, and other symptoms were recorded as outcomes. Results. Overall, patients showed a 36.4% reduction in volume and a 14% reduction in index size after one month, with p-values of 0.002 and 0.001, respectively. The final follow-up volume and index size were 194.7 centimeters cubed, and 77 millimeters, respectively. Moreover, a 53.0% reduction in volume and 22% reduction in index size during the final imaging were reported, with the p-values of 0.001 and 0.001, respectively. Significant reductions in the mean pain intensity, with 90% of patients with lower VS scores after intervention and symptoms were reported. Four patients were classified as clinically unsuccessful and were recommended further procedures for residual pain. Conclusions. CT fluoroscopy-guided transhepatic sclerotherapy is an effective, safe, and minimally invasive method to manage giant hepatic hemangiomas in an outpatient setting. Hello, my name is Richard Liang, and I am a fourth-year medical student at the New York Institute of Technology College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'll be reading the abstract titled Safety and Effectiveness of Transhepatic Access for Percutaneous Renal Mass Cryoablation, a Multicentered Cohort, by Graf and colleagues. Purpose, to establish transhepatic percutaneous cryoablation of renal masses as a safe and effective approach. Material Methods, a retrospective review of records from three separate medical centers was performed identifying 23 patients. 12 female who underwent percutaneous transhepatic cryoablation for right-sided renal masses between 2008 and 2021. The median radius, exophytic or endophytic, nearness to collecting system or sinus, anterior or posterior, 
and location relative to polarized phlebotomy score was 5. Adverse events were classified according to the Society of Interventional Radiology and Clavian Dindo classifications. Primary and secondary technical success of each procedure were recorded. Results. Renal cell carcinoma of any subtype was found in 10 of the 14 masses that were biopsied. Track cautery was used for transhepatic probes in 14 of 22 procedures. Three of the 23 patients had post-procedural adverse events. Two cases were hemorrhages related to transhepatic access, and one case was related to bowel injury. There were no instances of pneumothorax. Track cautery was used in the procedures that resulted in an adverse event. Primary technical success was achieved in 84.2% of procedures, whereas secondary technical success was achieved in two additional patients. The secondary technical success rate was 94.7%. Four patients did not have imaging follow-ups. Conclusions. The transhepatic approach to cryoablation of renal masses appears to have an acceptable safety profile and technical success rate. Larger studies, preferably comparative to non-transhepatic approach, are recommended. Hello, my name is Priya Gupta, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Rutgers, New Jersey Medical School. I will be reading the abstract titled, Evaluation of an Integrated Spectroscopy and Classification Platform for Point-of-Care Core Needle Biopsy Assessment, Performance Characteristics from Ex Vivo Renal Mass Biopsies, by Geshe Murthy and colleagues. Purpose to evaluate a transmission optical spectroscopy instrument for rapid ex vivo assessment of core needle cancer biopsies, or CNBs, at the point of care. Materials and methods. CNBs from surgically resected renal tumors and non-tumor regions were scanned on their sampling trays with a custom spectroscopy instrument. After extracting principal spectral components, Machine learning was used to train logistic regression, support vector machines, and random decision forest, or RF classifiers, on 80% of randomized and stratified data. The algorithms were evaluated on the remaining 20% of the data set held out during training. Binary classification, such as tumor or non-tumor, was performed based on a decision threshold. Multinomial classification was also performed to differentiate between the subtypes of renal cell carcinoma or RCC, and account for potential confounding effects from fat, blood, and necrotic tissue. Classifiers were compared based on sensitivity, specificity, and positive predictive value, or PPV, relative to a histopathologic standard. Results. A total of 545 CNVs from 102 patients were analyzed, yielding 5,583 spectra after outlier exclusion. At the individual spectral level, the best performing algorithm was RF with sensitivities of 96% and 92% and specificities of 90% and 89% for the binary and multi-class analyses, respectively. At the full CNB level, RF algorithm also showed the highest sensitivity and specificity, which were 93% and 91% respectively. For RCC subtypes, the highest sensitivity and PPV were attained for clear cell at 93.5% and chromophobe at 98.2% subtypes respectively. Conclusions. Ex vivo spectroscopy imaging paired with machine learning can accurately characterize renal mass CNV at the time of tissue acquisition. We thank all the medical students who helped with this episode. 
My name is Steve Lazar. I'm a third-year medical student at Virginia Commonwealth University School of Medicine, and I was your audio editor for this episode. The research from this episode appears in the November 2022 issue of JVIR, and you can visit jvir.org for the full papers, other audio content, and much more.